0: one, basic hip.
1: Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode number 331. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com, and you can buy all their records there. And also find out about their shows. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. You'll find him on Twitter being funny at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. A A quick note about the newsletter that goes out every week from the Jazz Session. I send that, or I have been sending it, on Mondays for... Years now. I don't know. Two or three years now. And starting this week, in fact, if you're listening to this episode in real time on the 22nd of December 2011, starting today, I'll be sending the newsletter out on Thursdays. The reason for that is that the newsletter always contains that week's shows, and it contains – uh, it, it should contain in a perfect world links to those shows so that you can click right through. And it never has done that before because I put the, usually make the newsletter before I've actually produced Thursday's show. So it would just say, you know, the show's available on such and such a date, but you'd have to actually remember to go back on that day and find it. Or, you know, it would come in your iTunes or whatever. Is this all more information than you want? I assumed that that was the case. But in any case, uh, Matt Marowitz, a music promoter and friend of mine, was asking about that very thing. Why can't I click through to both shows, which seemed like a very fair point. And so starting this week, they'll come out on Thursdays and there'll be a direct link right in the newsletter that will take you right to the show. So if you're reading it on your phone or anyplace else, you know, if it comes to you uh, rewritten on a piece of parchment with a quill pen – Well, in that case, you won't be able to click through. But in most of the other cases, you can go right to the show and start your listening right there. This show is member-supported, so if you are not yet a member, this is a great time. It makes a great Christmas gift for yourself. However, it also could make a great Christmas gift for another jazz fan in your life. So if you are not the only freak in your family, but there is in fact a second person in your family who likes jazz, or a friend of yours maybe – Maybe you'd like to give them a gift membership to the Jazz Session. They'll get access to some members-only content, and mostly they'll get thanked on the show, thanked on the website, and the good feeling of being part of this rapidly growing international movement that is the Jazz Session. My guest on the show today is a trombonist I've known for about a decade now named James Hirschfeld. He's a member of the Respect Sextet, who you've heard mentioned on every show since number one. And he's been on this show before in that context, but I'm very excited to have him on the show today talking about his new album, Two Medicine. You'll hear me gush about it later in the show, but suffice it to say, this is an album that really, really is worth listening to. He's selling it for $5, which I don't even understand. It's certainly worth more than $5, but it's absolutely worth $5. So uh, if you have $5 burning a hole in your cyber pocket, please do go to jameshirschfeld.com and uh, click on the links and buy the record because it's really great. Here's a track from Two Medicine, and then we'll hear the conversation with trombonist James Hirschfeld. Oh, you know what else? I think during the interview, I forgot to ever ask James who was in the band, and I think he mentions two-thirds of the band, Uh, but just to make sure that all of their names get on the show, it's uh, James, of course, on trombone, as I mentioned, Red Wirenga on piano, Ike Sturm on the bass, and Ted Poor on the drums is the quartet on this album. So anyway, here we go. Music from Two Medicine, and then my chat with James Hirschfeld. My guest is the composer and trombonist james hirschfeld who's got a new album called two medicine it's great to have you on the
2: show thanks for being here thanks for having me jason it's
1: actually great to have you back uh, people may uh recognize your name from the respect sextet and you've been on in that context before um but this new record i guess the, the first thing that struck me about it you you sent it to me before it was kind of a final product some number of months ago and then i heard the the finished thing recently and it really sounds to me like Album of songs. It is. It is very song-like. It's. It's very lovely. Even the things that aren't, you know, kind of, uh, lush or or ballad-like, just have a, an incredible melodic sense that I was really impressed with. I thought during the whole album, you know, if James was a singer instead of a trombonist, this would be an equally successful album and probably like a really, really good smart
2: pop record. And I hope I can take
1: that in the best possible way because that's
2: how I. Yeah. That's uh, how I mean it. Absolutely. Uh, I suppose that maybe my own insecurity as an improviser may have led to that. Uh, playing in respect, I'm surrounded by really fantastic improvisers, Eli Asher, Josh Rutner, Red Waringa, Ted Poor, all of them, Malcolm Kirby. And I love the way that uh, certain uh, jazz artists uh, can... Uh, allow their, they can do a record and their improvisations can carry the entire thing with a minimal amount of material and uh, I wanted to make a record that wasn't dependent on my ability to do that. I wanted to make a record where, like you said, um, I could sing essentially and I thought it was more prudent to sing uh, through the trombone than, uh, <laughs> than with my voice. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so is there a. Uh, maybe
1: it's best that we can start with uh, talking about the title of the record, which is also one of the tracks on the record and is the name of a place. Did, that, did going to that place uh, kick off the idea of this record, or was it just one of the, the more affecting places in this list? Of
2: this uh, it's certainly house? an affecting place. It's in uh, Glacier National Park in Montana. And uh, John, my uh, future husband, and I uh, f- flew out there or actually drove out there maybe six or seven years ago uh, for the first time and the first time I'd seen the Rocky Mountains. Uh, there are many points in the past seven years where I had this sort of uh, feeling um, that I had to make some sort of artistic statement, you know, in this case, a record. And I felt that way ever since I graduated college, uh, the, the, actually the track called Donau-Eschigen, which is a city in Germany, um, was really in October of 2010. Really, that was the moment when I made the decision that I was going to do this record. And it was at that, uh, inspiring moment that I, I don't know what changed from previous times when I sort of had that same idea, but, uh, Somehow is able to follow through and, and do the record about, uh, four or five months later.
1: I read in the, in the blog post that you wrote before actually recording the record, but when you knew you were about to, that there was something about that moment in Germany where the idea of life as a, a professional musician, life as an artist making a living by playing music kind of solidified for you. It sounded like maybe in a way that it hadn't before. Is that an accurate statement?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I was there because of a, uh, new music conference that happens there, or a series of performances, and I was mentioning John, um, he plays in a string quartet, uh, the Jack Quartet, and they were performing there. And I was, uh, along for the ride, essentially, and I, uh, don't want to say it was jealous, but I was inspired by uh, what was going on there, and I was also out of my element. I wasn't in, in New York, um, I was away from my sort of daily routine with the computer and, uh, I don't watch too much TV, but TV and I was alone with my thoughts. And I guess, uh, it sort of solidified at that moment.
1: And at that point, because we're not talking about all that long ago, we're talking about just last year. At that point, did you have a lot of this music already written or was it then time to sit down and make an actual, compose a record?
2: Yeah, a lot of fragments I had written um, from really the past seven or eight years. I have all these fragments that are, some are 10 seconds and some are a minute long. Every piece on the record developed from a fragment that had been conceived of probably years earlier, with some exceptions. Uh, The challenge was to take that fragment, which I felt really good about. You know, you could think about it about it as like the hook of a song take that fragment and develop it into a you know a track that would be three four five minutes and uh as i said earlier where i wasn't just going to have an open blowing section necessarily there's a little bit of that uh but it meant that i had to actually compose the material
1: and once you knew that you were doing these things with the end product of an album in view did that also mean that you tried to to compose, because the album hangs together really well. Were were you thinking of it in terms of an entire record, as opposed to a series of, you know, single track downloads as people are always complaining (laughs) about these
2: days. Actually in a way. Yeah. What happens when you write these fragments is that oftentimes they, uh, maybe they don't stand so well on their own and they go better with other things. I, when I did a, you know, I went to jazz conservatory, uh, you know, when I did my recital there and, uh, I did a series of short pieces, uh, for part of it, and I've always sort of liked writing short pieces, and maybe that has to do with my attention span, uh, but what ended up happening is that, um, I ended up writing sort of pairs of songs. So, uh, there's one song called Intro, and that's an intro to Rochester. So those are sort of, that's a pair of songs. The other pair is Tour. Going into Donna Eshigan. Um, and so, uh, I think that, uh, yeah, I did con- sort of conceive of the whole thing as a record, but it also developed along the way. In the end, I, when I decided on the order, things seemed to flow in a certain direction.
1: And those two pairs that you just mentioned, those were two existing fragments that then you fleshed
2: out and also linked. Well, together, really, the composition? in the case of a tour, uh, in the case of intro in Rochester, they use the exact same rhythmic. Uh, a hook which they're both in 5-4 and they have a sort of um, rhythmic uh, structure to them in each bar uh, basically there's an anticipation on the and of 5 people, okay. can, people can listen to it but they're at different tempos and totally different feelings so you might not pick up on it so really that was the result of coming up with this rhythmic figure and then going in two different directions with it and then I was like well which one should I use and then I was like wait I'll just use both of them <laughs> other ones a tour uh, which was originally named triplets because the piano player just bangs out these triplets for the entire song uh, I wrote it and it didn't it sort of doesn't stand on its own but then as part of the next piece uh, Dona Eschingen, it sort of it sort of worked it had the same mood and I actually composed those things on this very same day. Okay. So I, maybe that's why.
1: Sure. These tracks are primarily uh, place names, and I, I don't, I don't have an exhaustive knowledge of your personal history. But from the knowledge that I do have, many of them are place names that obviously are places that you've lived, from Vermont to Rochester to New York, where you are now. You already mentioned Dilna Michigan. So maybe for folks uh, who are just getting to know you, can you just give us a little? Um, kind of travelogue of your, your life so far, maybe starting in
2: Vermont? Sure. Uh, well, I yeah, grew up in Vermont, I lived there till I was, you know, uh, 17, when I then went to college in Rochester at the Eastern School of Music, and, uh, you know, I probably had, you know, those four years in Rochester had probably as much activity as the 17 years in Vermont, <laughs> in a way, you know, for anyone who went to school. Um, and then uh, I moved to New York in 2004, and I've been here Ever since the other places, such as Two Medicine uh, and Adoneushingin, and uh, there's a gorgeous piece called Milan. Oh, Milan! Yeah, uh, yeah. Those are places that I have been um, either through uh, music. You know, I've I've gone there with other groups, or uh, or I've gone there on, uh, I guess, vacation. In the case of Two Medicine, although, uh, you know, when we go there, we hike you know, 15 miles a day. It doesn't really it, it's vacation to me, but it really—I always try and find some sort of uh, something that will enrich enrich me when I, you know, I get bored easily. So I want to be really busy and I want to challenge myself. So that's that's how I sort of think as think what I think of as vacation.
1: And did you append these place name titles after the pieces were written, or or are the pieces somehow suggestive to you of these after of these places? After. I did okay. it
2: after, uh, in, except in the case of Milan, which. Was inspired by a, uh, a, uh, oh, uh, an artist named, uh, Fennis. And he released a record called Venice. And there's the first track on that record, uh, that Milan is sort of, I, w- I had gone to Milan maybe a month before I wrote the, the, uh, piece. Don't know something about that track, and that I just gone to Milan. I sort of you know I think titles are sort of silly. You know that's why people call their pieces you know concerto for viola in A measure, You know it's it, uh, I I think it's silly to write a song about something if it doesn't if it doesn't have words. Um, I just think it's silly. But of course you have to name your pieces something. And the working titles that I had, like I said, triplets. You can't name a song triplets, and I just. Naming songs is very awkward for me, so uh, place names were the, were the best thing I could come up with. You decided not to go the Braxton route of, you know, numbers one through nine or whatever. Uh, well, I, I, I use, I've used dates before, but it gets very confusing when you're going through your files and you're like, well, was that January 2nd, 2010 or January 3rd, 2010? I mean, it's no way to organize your life, and, you know.
1: you did uh, you know the story you just described obviously incredibly condensed but you know you grew up someplace you went someplace else to go to jazz school and then you did what many people do and you moved to New York but what's interesting to me is that it sounds like uh, that is the, you know that's the path of the average like okay I'm out of jazz school now I'm going to go make my way in the jazz world so I'm going to New York City but it sounds to me like some number of years passed in which you were playing and, it, and in many cases with some pretty high profile groups but that it was more recently like you said before that it it really solidified for you into a career. So I'm wondering what, what you felt about what you were doing during that time from when you came to New York until the Doma Eshigan trip, when you thought, uh, okay, this
2: is more real for me now than it, than it was.
1: Maybe I'm not even portraying it correctly and feel free to correct me.
2: Well, I wouldn't really consider myself a go getter. Uh, and when I moved to New York in 2004, I, uh, had a little bit of money saved up. Um, and if I was telling someone to move to New York, I would say, come to New York, call up everybody, play, sit in, take everything that comes to you, start a blog, find a way to be visible, be on the scene, be an excellent player – sorry, that should have come first <laughs> – uh, with something to say and, and just go out there and don't stop until you've got what you came for. Well – I ran, I came in August 2004. I ran out of money in October 2004. <laughs> and I got a job, uh, working, doing temp work, um, through, actually I worked at Bear Stearns, if that's crazy. Uh, and I ended up working there for four years. Uh, not full time, on and off. There were times when I was full time. And it's hard to know whether that was, well, that was, it was not worthwhile let's let's say that but it's difficult to be someplace where you're happy and then say that you regret everything that led led you to be at that place so uh and and I sometimes think well if I had made a record when I was 24 it might not have been a great record you know maybe it took some time for me to solidify ideas and maybe I made the record at the exact right time. Uh, and some people, I know my good friend Josh Rottner points to, uh, Art Blakey and John Coltrane, who were uh, somewhat older when they made their first uh, solo records. And, uh, I would resist any comparison of myself to Art Blakey and John Coltrane <laughs> for the record. Just, uh, just throwing that out there. Um, but, you know, so I didn't take my own advice of going out there, but I think it's still good advice, and I, uh, I aspire—those are my aspirations—to be a go-getter. Um, well, and in a lot of ways, and I mean, we certainly—this is not really the place to delve
1: into your personal life, but it's not as if you were kind of in stasis, like in a in a room, just going to Bear Stearns and going home and not talking to anybody. I mean, obviously, you just mentioned your future husband, John. I mean, you were you were getting other things taking care of in your life and kind of getting other sides sorted and maybe that allows the that kind of solid foundation from which you can launch now this other part of your personality.
2: I think that's true. I think uh being poor is uh you know and again I have um, I I'm extremely lucky person with a uh wonderful family and a support group of friends and I wouldn't compare, you know, my poorness to you know, real poverty, uh, with, so, with that disclaimer, not having any money, um, is, it makes, can make it difficult to, uh, create, I think. Um, is working 40 hours a week, uh, you know, you come home and it's sort of a difficult to, you know, turn on the creative firepower and, and go to work. At the same time, yeah, I was, was started playing with Darcy James Argue, uh, in 2005, and there I did take my own advice. I wrote to Darcy, uh, the great band leader, and, uh, asked him if I could play in the band. And one week later, I was playing in the band, and I've been playing ever <laughs> since. Uh, so that's sort of a good success story. And from that one gig, I got, I started playing with the industrial jazz group, uh, with Andrew Durkin runs, and we went to Holland. Uh, we went to Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, uh, I was doing lots of things. And temp work is flexible, of course. That was the great thing about it. So I, I wasn't in a period of stasis. I was playing, with uh, the Respect Six Tet, uh, uh, and we were doing releasing records and doing great things. So I don't – yeah, you're right. I wasn't just sitting in a room. <laughs> can you hear uh, on this
1: new record, Two Medicine, can you hear – uh, when you listen to it, the effects of those musical experiences that you just mentioned, the playing with RC, playing with Andrew's band, playing in respect, th- are there things you can isolate and say, well, if I'd made this record when I was 24, these elements wouldn't have been there because I hadn't done X, or is it not quite so clear cut as that maybe?
2: Uh, well, I would say that playing in respect uh, has basically been set the um, sort of table for everything that I was, I'm doing on this record, uh, even though that might be a difficult a connection to see but uh for example to medicine uh was inspired by ted who uh, of course plays on the record um ted poor and i was just sort of imagining him playing the drums as drum solo and then and then something on top of it Everything about that is sort of came from the drums. And, uh, and then Ike's got, Ike Sturm has this wonderful bass sound that I really wanted to feature. He's got a, probably the biggest bass I've ever seen in my life. He's a big guy. And, um, and so he gets these, and an extension on the bass that goes to a low C. So any opportunity to use that was, uh, I I took advantage of. So actually that, that piece, was inspired mostly by the players.
1: Yeah, and there's some uh, there's some really beautiful use of Ike's bowing technique along with your trombone that I think just sounds fantastic. I mean, he has such a deep sound, and I think your sound is really rich too, and it's it's so nice together. It's really great.
2: Yeah, we thought of that. Uh, True Medicine um, almost as a duet between the bass and uh trombone when we mixed it. Mm. Um, on New York, we thought of that as a duet between the drums and the trombone when we mixed it. So. That's interesting when you say when you mixed it um do you mean
1: that was a concept you had before, and you used the process of mixing to bring out that concept uh to people's ears
2: yeah actually, and that that's really credit to uh our pro- the co producer Gray McMurray, who plays in the great band Nights on Earth, and also uh it's not you, it's me with Caleb Burhans uh I asked Gray to help produce the record because I just respect his musicality and and he's a good friend of mine that went to school with me and It was, those were the types of ideas that he had. Um, he had ideas before the music was even written. He had ideas once the music was written, but before it had been recorded. He had ideas during the recording process and he had ideas in the mixing process all throughout the entire process. He was involved, uh, and every single one of those ideas. Pro, you know, pretty much made it into the record.
1: Why did you decide? That's in many ways, that's kind of a almost a throwback to to what people used to do with producers, and it seems pretty rarely done now. Why did you decide to have a producer on this record?
2: Well, part of it was that I should go back to the you know that that time when I was. Uh in Donald, Michigan, when I decided I was really going to make this record, that this was really going to be the time I was going to do it. I mean, I went as far as to tell myself that I would not cut my hair uh, until I had record made that record. And at that time, my hair was pretty long. I usually, people don't know what I look like. I usually have a somewhat of a crew cut. And uh, that seems really silly. I didn't really tell anybody about it, but I just thought that you know, ten years from now, if I had really long hair, I would, every time I looked in the mirror, I would know, I would see, you know, visual representation of something that I had not done. <laughs> um, and, wow. s- and so, uh, sorry. What was that, what was the question again? So, uh, so it. Uh, why you chose to have a producer on this record? Oh, right. I felt like having, uh, I felt like one thing that had prevented me from making records is my own sort of filter and, 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 I don't want to say insecurity, but, you know you you write something on the piano and you listen to it and you think gosh that's not is that okay can i do that that sounds maybe that sounds too pretty or it doesn't sound original enough and you know i would sometimes write things into my into finale the notation program and i'd spend 2 hours working on it and at the end i'd be like i don't like this and i would just close it and i wouldn't even save it you know just wow. you know a, a couple hours of work and I felt like having a producer would, I could just give it to him and be like, what do you think of this? And he would say, you know, develop it or, or put it aside. And especially at the recording session, I would really recommend this to anyone who makes a record. Uh, you really cannot rely on your own sense of judgment, um, at that moment. You know, you, you just did a take in the studio and you go in to listen to it. it you're not going to be happy with what you're hearing. For a lot of people, I mean, it depends on the person, but I knew that I wouldn't be an accurate judge. So I wanted someone else's ears in there that I could trust. And on that whole session, I didn't listen to any playback of anything. I just let Gray McMurray listen to it. And he would say, do another one or move on. And it was fantastic to have him there.
1: Oh, that's, yeah, that sounds really valuable. So, it, in the beginning, when you were first talking to Gray about this record, did you have – I mean, in what terms were you speaking? What, what were you able to say to him about what you wanted to do so that he had some idea of what to suggest
2: to you? Oh, right. Well, it's really it's really difficult to talk about music you haven't written. I read a, <laughs> a, a great article um, that said uh, everyone's – what is it? Everyone's unwritten ideas are genius. And it was talking about – the article was How to Be a Better Writer. And, um, you know, in my head, my, my album was really going to be amazing. Some amazing stuff, you know, but, you know, that's, everyone feels that way, you know, it's getting it out onto paper. So I remember having the conversation with them and I said something like, I, I remember using the word radiohead. I said something like that, which I'm sort of ashamed of, uh, but I was trying to describe music that had not been written. Um, the first thing I was able to really give to him was m- mock-ups of the music that I had made in a computer program called Logic, which has all these samples of, you know, piano and, uh, bass. So you can actually make a really, uh, great sounding. I mean, most of the soundtracks you hear on TV are made in Logic probably with synthetic, you know, or sampled sounds. Sure. So, and then I played along with it and I gave him these uh, still fragments really and, and he would comment on those.
1: It's uh, I'm glad you said the word "radiohead" because actually that I really wanted to say it, but it seems like it's out there so much in the air these days that I was reluctant to, you know, kind of bring forth the beast that is radiohead in the modern music world. But that when I was saying at the beginning that this sounds to me like an album of, of really good pop songs. And to me I'm a huge fan. I have to, people who listen to this show know this, but I'm a huge fan of pop music. So I don't say that in any kind of derisive way. I mean, I mean it sounds like an album of music that affects me emotionally, not just mentally. And I like I listened I've listened to this album a bunch of times now in the, the first version you sent me and this one. And I, I mean I really enjoy listening to it. I can tell when I listen to it it's an album I'm going to put on again that I'm not just putting on for the purpose of this interview and like so many it will go on a shelf, and I'll never hear it again, or I'll hear it in ten years. I mean, it's just a really good record of like smart but emotionally potent music. I think, and I think that like the Radiohead model is a is a perfectly fine one for composers if you can do it in a way that actually sounds like you.
2: And I think this does. I'm not sure if there's a question at the end of this, but anyway, I just wanted to say. Sure. That well, I fine. think uh, the the emotional sometimes is a tricky word for me. Uh, the what I don't want to be is sentimental. Sure. And I think you can be. I think you can have emotionally driven music that is not sentimental. I agree. It can be objectively sort of. Uh, you know, some things are just. Uh, yeah, I try not to emote, um, but. Uh, You know, I'm not sad about any of this music, you know, but, you know, maybe a song just seems sort of sad, I suppose, but, um, yeah, so I tried not to be, um, uh, sentimental about it, uh, but I I have tried to create music that is, um, you know, hits people emotionally and not necessarily, I'm not going to go on a a jazz nerd uh, rant here, you know, but, you know, that... Music uh, of sort of uh, angular, you know, uh, sort of atonal. You know, I I listen to it, I like it, uh, but it's not the kind of music that I write. So I, and so I guess I just felt like it took me a long time to sort of accept that the music that I sort of heard in my head, well, that could be my record. That could be a trombone record where I had some maybe sense that I had to write complicated music or something.
1: Sure. You mentioned, uh, playing with Darcy James Argue and with the Industrial Jazz Group and, of course, Respect. Are there other projects that you're involved with these days?
2: Yeah, actually, uh, I play, um, I do a fair amount of playing with, in contemporary classical music, um, with, uh, the group Ensemble Signal, um, occasionally with Alarm Will Sound. And, um, I love playing at Wordless Music Orchestra as well. I really enjoy playing contemporary classical music. I, one thing that um I will say uh, a lot of jazz musicians uh, don't do well is rehearsal. Uh, I'm not sure why that is. I love rehearsing, and it, maybe it's the fact that when you rehearse in a classical group, often you have a conductor mm. who leads that rehearsal. And so in the case of Brad Lubman with Signal Ensemble, y- you have this inspiring uh, uh person up front, and... You know, everyone is there for four hours. There's no subs. You know, everyone shows up at, before rehearsal starts and stays all the way to the end. And in any jazz group I've ever played in, I mean, to have everyone there for rehearsal is completely unheard of. (laughs) And, you know, to, to, to have, you know. And even the gigs sometimes. Even the (laughs) gigs, yeah. So I really love playing in these, these classical groups. I, I love how much can be accomplished. Playing very, 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 very difficult music. Music that is much more difficult than, you know, technically speaking, than any of this, you know, jazz I play. Uh, but you know, in a period of days, you can put something together and it's a really cool process.
1: And are you tending, obviously it's contemporary classical, so to some degree that answers the question, but are you tending to play music that's extremely recent? Are these new commissions, new pieces that these groups are premiering?
2: Sure. Well, uh, you know, I, through, uh, alarmal Sound, we play, uh, Steve Reich. So, okay. you know, I, that sort of fits into a minimalist, I, or Philip Glass, but then we also play the music of, uh, Louis Andreessen and, um, uh, Hilda Paredes and, you know, some modern, it runs the gamut, really. Mm. Uh, I like playing new music, regardless of the quality, often. I just enjoy playing music that's never been played before. Obviously,
1: said it was just technically difficult, but does it demand something different from you as a trombonist? Are you a different trombonist in these groups in some sense?
2: A little bit. Uh, the great thing about um, these groups, these contemporary classical groups, is often you're the only trombone player, and you really do function like a, a a voice, where when you play something, you're asked to bring your personality into it. People think of classical music as, you know, you're part of a section and that you... Um, try and blend in. Actually, with contemporary classical, you really are bringing yourself into the performance. And, uh, especially in, uh, music of, uh, Ligeti, you know, you, uh, when you have a gesture on the trombone, you just, you have to own it. And in a way, that's very similar to any, you have to convince the audience of, of, of the, you know, of what you're saying on the instrument. So in a way, that's very similar.
1: Are these more, uh, maybe chamber ensembles or That's can, right, chamber ensembles. So, can you give yeah. us an idea of what,
2: like, the signal ensemble, what, what instrumentation we'd see? On, it would on a be, stage. yeah, like, uh, eight strings, you know, violin through bass, and then, um, you'd have a woodwind section, clarinet, oboe, bassoon, uh, flute, and then a brass section, usually horn, trombone, or trumpet, and then percussion and piano. So, except in the case of the strings, one person on each of the other That's right, yeah, okay. exactly. Oh, and awesome. blending, you get to blend, you know, you play something and it, maybe you're with the flute player or maybe you're with the bassoon player, or maybe you're with the cello. So it's a constant challenge just to blend. And, uh yeah, it's very inspiring.
1: I'm always surprised that there's not more crossover in the presentation of those two musics. The kind of, you know, like uh, Darcy's band or a band like Respect would seem to be uh, – a perfect companion, and I've, I've never heard either of the contemporary classical bands you play in, but I've heard many others, uh, would seem to be a perfect companion in many ways to the contemporary classical scene. And it seems like there's not a lot of, at least from my vantage point, not a lot of crossover.
2: I don't know if you see things differently or... Uh, I I agree. I think that really, uh, organizationally, maybe that's the, the biggest problem a lot of times jazz groups just really are organizationally challenged. Mm. And when classical groups uh, put on a concert, it's because they've uh, prepared a grant and they got grant money and everyone is getting paid a, a, you know, a fair, you know, a decent amount of money uh, for their participation in the performance. And so there's a lot of organization that goes into that, that classical groups are really on top of. They're usually nonprofit and in the jazz side of things, it's more, yeah, when playing at some club for no money um, is sort of the basis for, you know, or forms, you know, is that's a lot of your shows that you're doing. It's, I think they're just not on the same plane. And if they were on the same plane, I think you'd see a little bit more of that. Uh, how did you land these contemporary classical gigs? Really through Eastman. Uh, my connections that I made through there, it's got a very strong You know, classical program. The jazz program is sort of, you know, on the side at Eastman. They added it in the late 90s. And through, uh, relationships that I made there, I just, I've carried them on. And, uh, yeah, otherwise, I probably have no business playing in those groups.
1: (laughs) Uh, If people are listening to this in real time, it is uh, on or about December 22nd, 2011. Are there shows coming up for any of the ensembles that you're performing in?
2: Uh, the next, uh, shows I, I have coming up are with Darcy James, arguably, Secret Society, and we're playing at the Jazz Gallery, uh, and that's on January 6th and 7th as, uh, part of the, uh, partisan festival, I believe. Oh, okay. And, um, that's a great space to hear that band. It's a very small space. Um, I don't know how we get a big band on that stage, but, <laughs> you know, if people aren't familiar with Darcy's music, it's, uh, really sort of, fan- you know, it's fantastic music and, uh, I would highly recommend it.
1: Are there any uh, uh, new pieces or, or recent work coming up at the show? Do you know? Uh,
2: well, we just recently premiered a piece called Brooklyn Babylon. It was premiered at, at Brooklyn Academy of Music, and I'm sure that we'll play some of those pieces.
1: Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, I wasn't uh, around for any of that. Uh, the Brooklyn Babylon shows, which I was really upset about, but a bunch of my friends went and said it was amazing. What was your experience?
2: Well, you know, we were just talking about um, – organizationally about sort of jazz groups sort of being, you know, sort of like cavemen when it comes to not to offend <laughs> cavemen. Um, uh, but uh, Darcy has turned that on its head where he is extremely organized and has received grants, uh, applies for grants and has found a way to, I mean, that, that production was very expensive and he was able to raise the money to get it to happen. There were directors involved, lots of grants involved. So uh, my experience was very positive. Um, if I were better, I'm sorry to interrupt you. If I were better at this, I would have
1: actually asked you to tell people what it is. In fact, that we're talking about oh, what Brooklyn Babylon is. So <laughs> I apologize. Let me start over. Let me start over.
2: Brooklyn Babylon was a uh, sort of a involved Darcy James Argue's big band secret society, and it paired it with an artist, Daniel Zazel, who takes a drawings that are um, sort of comic book-like and uh, animates them uh, through, I guess, um stop motion or live action. I don't know what you call that. Uh, the entire performance, we were on this elaborate stage set up, and the drawings were projected onto a screen, and there was also live uh, painting going on by the artist, and it told a story. It was sort of like an opera, basically. Involved so many moving parts. I mean, I don't even know what was going on behind the scenes, really. I was just playing trombone and tuba. Um, (laughs) and, uh, but it was a, a great, uh, example of a jazz, someone in the jazz field, uh, organizing in a way that is sort of, um, unique in the jazz world. Uh, where can people find Two Medicine, your new album? Well, uh, I've put it on the website. It's digital only. I put it on the website, bandcamp.com. Um, so if you go to jameshirschfeld.bandcamp.com, you can actually listen to the entire album for free, stream it on the computer, and you can download it for $5 at any quality, uh, you know, CD quality or MP3. Um, you can also go to my website, jameshirschfeld.com, and there will be a link to the uh, music from there my guest is james hirschfeld the new album is two medicine which i highly
1: recommend you go get at five dollars it is a ridiculous deal so go go buy it from james uh it's been a pleasure over the years listening to you and i thank you for taking the time to come on the show
2: thanks for having me jason
1: That's music from trombonist James Hirschfeld and his new album, Two Medicine. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Please do become a member if you like what you hear. You can do it for as little as 10 bucks a month. And a reminder that right now there's a special membership campaign going on. The next two people who join at the middle or top level either yearly or monthly. You can do the monthly installments or the all-in-one chunk yearly sum. But if you join at the middle or top level, you'll get a copy of Anthony Wilson's DVD CD set, Seasons, which is super cool. It's a guitar quartet piece uh, written by Anthony to be played on four guitars that were built to be played together. uh, Four Monteleone guitars. And the piece is amazing and the DVD is super fun to watch. So if you join at the middle or upper level, the next two people to do that will get a copy of Seasons by Anthony Wilson. Meanwhile, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the jazz session.
0: everybody bye bye, bye.